0: Is this you? It's not only me, it's every children in Cuba. This is Elion today, unshaven when we first met him. His first extended interview since he was 11. At 21, he speaks a little English, and in our exclusive interview, arranged and primarily shot by a Cuban photographer who has worked with Elion before. He takes us to the coast 15 years after his mother drowned, trying to take Elion to America in a small boat, leading to an international custody struggle. I was alone in the middle of the sea, and that's the last thing I remember. And while he disagrees with what she did, he is moved by his mother's efforts to keep him afloat as she drowned. That was a report about Elian Gonzalez, who was really a flashpoint in... U.S. American relationships with Cuba in the 90s and into the 2000s. As the report mentioned, Elian's mother took the boy to Florida on a raft and drowned. Meanwhile, Elian's father, back in Cuba, wanted the boy back in Cuba. Cuban Americans wanted him in Florida. The Castro government wanted him back in Cuba. He was a Cuban citizen. Eventually, he went back to Cuba, and the whole thing kind of quieted down for a while, especially under the Barack Obama years. But in the meanwhile, as the U.S. and Cuba were were heating up their rhetoric and, and continuing the Cold War, Canada was sending more and more tourists to Cuba, and Cubans were silently and quietly starting to come to Canada. Not as exiles, not burning their passports, but trying to at least maintain some kind of bridge back to the island. Now, I'm really pleased that in this last episode of the Canada-Cuba miniseries we've been bringing you from History X, I will be able to bring you a profile by my students Natalie Soria and Gina Ochoa from LAST 210 that they did. Featuring one of those Cubans who is also Canadian. We're just going to use his first name, Alexis, because as you'll hear, he does have relationships back in Cuba and um, does not hold back in his political opinions. Um, History X doesn't necessarily endorse anything he says, but I think it's important to understand his life experience and what it's like to be a Cuban and a Latino more broadly living in Alberta today. You are listening to History X on the mighty, mighty CJSR 88.5 FM on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Amiskwichiwa, Skygon. Thank you so much for listening. I'll check back with you in a few minutes. Bye-bye.
1: My name is Gina Ochoa. And my name is Natalie Azuria. We'll be continuing with the final part of this story, when Linda and Yangtong left off, we saw Cuba facing a crisis. On this next segment, we'll be going through the 80s all
2: the way to present day Cuba. We now welcome Alexis with La Rumba Cuban Dance Company to speak about his experience growing up in Havana and making his dream come true in Canada.
3: My name is Alexis from Havana, Cuba. And I'm a professional dance instructor for almost 30 years. I moved to Canada in 2006. I, I want to be feisty. I don't look, but I want to be fifty. <laughs> oh, this is a big history. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started dance in Cuba when I was like three years old. When I was like seven years old, we went to the in the summertime summertime camp and I won the first place in a competition with Michael Jackson Styling. It's funny because my dad is almost a, this Olympic champion and he always, he always want me to be athletic. I mean, I don't like it. I always want to be a dancer. I went to school, I graduated in chemistry, but I don't like, I don't like, no, I don't make enough money <laughs> in my job. So in the in nighttime, I went to school, dance school. From there, uh, somebody told me, I want to come into my company, I want to do an audition for you, blah, 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 all this stuff. I said, okay. And this is when I start my professional career. So I started uh, dancing Siete Potencia. That is the Afro-Cuban dance company in Cuba. And I went to the TV, the show, uh, dance competition, and this is what people started recognizing me. Yeah, and after I started teaching Havana Vieja in the tourist school, like we teach, to the tourists coming to uh, whatever country, Canada, Italy. After that, I moved to Canada. (laughs)
1: Alexa starts off with explaining how he came to Canada. Things didn't start out the way he imagined they would be, and he basically had to put his dreams on hold.
2: There is a huge risk that comes with immigration and an emotional aspect of culture shock that we hear about as Alexis reveals more of his story.
3: I think I want to come here and I say, okay, I want to start teaching. I want to start, uh, yeah, I want to start making money. You know, my, my life my life is going to change. Nope. When, when you immigrate to another country, you take a risk and you don't know. So yeah, for me it was very difficult my first four years here. I almost went back to Cuba. <laughs> yeah, I almost, because <clears throat> I, I don't feel good here. I took call and I say, no way, I can't be here. I want to go back to Cuba. And I almost bought the ticket. But my friend, you say, oh, are you crazy? And you know, how many people want to be here in that time, 2006? The economy here was very, very good. And finally, I stayed here. And after, finally, I opened my my school. And that, but somebody helped me. So this is why I opened my school.
2: So we see he had a support system, which is really important for newcomers. He had his friend encouraging him not to blow the opportunity to live in Canada. And he also had support to start his dance company.
1: Yeah, I definitely think the amount of support a person gets really determines if they will be able to make it in a new country or if they need to go home, right? I know with my family and friends there's this belief that canada is the best place on earth and you'd be dumb to waste that opportunity almost this
2: american dream ideology of course going back home wasn't the best option for alexis and so we asked him to tell us about what the conditions in cuba were like when he left in 2006.
3: it's difficult to explain because uh, uh, to live in cuba you have to the only way you can live right now and that time you know black market or you have to work in the place uh, with what I told you before. In Cuba, after your son or your daughter is seven years old, they can't have more milk. From, from when the baby is born to seven years, the government gives you some milk. After seven, you, you don't want to drink milk anymore. I told you, I work in chemistry, food chemistry. So I work in the laboratory. And, uh, but... After I was making, you know the waffle? That, let me say, we have the waffle, but in Cuba we call sorbeto. I don't know, you know the sorbeto here in Canada, like has some cream inside. So this cream, I make this cream. So this waffle have inside milk. So what are you doing? You don't have milk in your house. <laughs> For sure I stole the milk. But they say I stole the milk, but they didn't find out, I stole the milk. So I went to court twice. I almost go here. And this is when I decide to quit my job and dedicate my life to dance.
1: Now that Alexis is dedicated to dance, he starts telling us about what he does in Calgary.
3: We are only two schools in Calgary teaching Cuban style, me and another school. The only teaching Afro-Cuban body movement is my school. So that means the Afro-Cuban the foundation.
1: Knowing that Canada has the third largest Cuban population of immigrants, we we're wondering what were the distinctions between Cuban culture and Canadian culture?
3: Ooh, so much different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, for example, in Cuba, we, uh, we listen the music 24 7, you know? When I came here, so you, you have to come here, when you come here, you have to live with somebody or or you or, and you can play the music too loud or, or you can we always party to the next day here you can do that it's it's almost different for example with in the car we like to hear the music very loud <laughs> you can't do it because some people do it but, you know it's police the police catch you you know you can get a ticket um it's uh, it's very big it's very big very big different for
2: yeah, there's a reason that he
3: left, and we
2: dig deeper into that by shifting our conversation.
3: I don't know if you know in the, I think it was in the eighty when, uh el Mariel. I don't know el Mariel when a lot of people left Cuba to the U.S. So you, you people in in the big boats left left Cuba, no, because they don't like the communists. Um, so I saw this stuff. Yeah, I saw people leaving. I saw my. My mom's sister, she she left. She left in that time. The Russian, they help you a lot, you know. We give sugar to to uh, to Russian, and they give, you know, that we have like can of meat. I remember we have a lot of meat. Com, we call compotas from you from from Russia, and we have food in that time. But the the American. Uh, for sure, they said they want to put the the communists down. That is is for years and years. Um, in that time, the the economy, I can tell you it was good because I was like ten years since so, that time. But it's not like bad. Like after na- the, the after the ninety, after we have the Central American game in Cuba, everything go to I don't know. You know, period especial. I don't know if so you get out about that.
2: El Mariel, also known as the Mariel Boatlift, was a mass immigration of Cubans from the Mariel Harbor in Cuba to the United States, which took place between April 15th and October 31st in the 80s. These refugees are referred to as Marielitos. And what happened that Fidel Castro ordered those who did not want to stay in Cuba to leave, saying, we don't want them, we don't need them. About 125,000 Cubans are said to have migrated to Florida.
1: A lot of people thought this was the only option. And we know that once you got to the U.S., there was this wet feet, dry feet policy under the Clinton administration, which meant that anyone with wet feet or cotton water either got deported or sent to another country. And those who made it to dry soil, hence Dry feet were able to stay and apply for permanent residence
3: After the how you call the El Muro de Berlín, se cayó when they come down, everything changed. Everything changed. I can tell you, oh my God, uh, we was eating like in the breakfast, water with sugar, bread with nothing inside.
1: To give a little bit more context behind Alexis's account. I should note that the fall of the Berlin Wall occurred just one year before the 1990s Central American Games in Cuba. While these games were happening, the Soviet Union collapsed and that took a toll on Cuba since it heavily relied on subsidies from Russia. Cuba's GDP fell as a result and this takes us to the El Periodo Especial, the Special Period of Cuba.
2: The Special Period took place between 1991 and 2000. At this point, many Cuban-Americans were already pushing for U.S. embargoes to hurt Castro. It was a time of food scarcities, blackouts, and crisis. A lot happened between this time frame. In 1994, we have the Maleconazo protest against Castro's governance.
1: Malecon translates to the word peer. And this protest is what sets off the famous Crisis de los Barceros. A second wave of mass migration to the U.S. People literally got old cars or whatever parts they can fashion into boats and rafts. I would highly recommend Googling this. They were so desperate to leave, they risked it all by traveling through unstable water and shark infested water by that matter.
3: Unmastered in 1994 was La Crisis de los parceros. That was hard. A lot of my friends never make it. A lot of people die in the ocean. Um, you you can see the three people making the boat, and um, you see like people take uh, for example they have the old car, the 1950, and they change the, the car to the boat. Like <laughs> people try to go out the Cuba from. We call a la lanchita de regla. Like we have the boat. You don't have bridge, la like puente, no. So. You have to cross with the boat. You know what I mean? Some of these boats went to the US. <laughs> well, they tried to win yeah, I see one went to the US. Somebody take it all the way to the US. Yeah, that was in the, the big uh, another big if this thing happened here.
1: The odds could change for somebody in a matter of minutes. A lot of Cubans relied on this policy and saw it as an opportunity to gain access to the US.
2: Exactly, but when Obama got rid of it in 2006, he did so much more harm than good in the eyes of the Cubans. The Americans saw this as a progressive reform to strengthen diplomatic relations to Cuba and to start treating Cuban migrants the same as others, but many Cubans, like I said, were angry because this reform limited their access to the United States.
1: We ask Alexis why there is such a desperation to leave.
3: Sure, people start living in 1994. ninety four. Nobody wanna live here with you no know, food, with no nothing. Some people live for political because they don't like communist fortune. So people say, I want to know Europe, I want to know Canada. And you see all this, plus, you don't have internet in Cuba, and you don't have internet, so people don't know. But right now, everybody has the internet in Cuba. So people, they open masks more. Yeah, the ice.
1: And we heard a lot about the dynamic between the U.S. and Cuba. Now, take a turn in our interview, circle back to Alexa's perspective on Cuban-Canadian relationship.
3: I see right now where Cuba, Canada is the first tourist uh, we have in Cuba. It's the first one. Before was, I see Italy.
2: The official stats from 2020 state that Canada was the main source of international tourism in Cuba.
1: The relationship goes both ways. The Queens University in Ontario has an exchange program with the University of Havana. This is the one way Canada is advertising its educational opportunities.
2: Alexis also tells us what his friends think about Canada.
3: A lot of my friends, they, you know, I don't, I don't know if you see in in the internet or Facebook, they put like Canada is looking for hard worker or for you know people uh, to come into Canada to work. So I have a lot of friends apply for that. They love Canada. They don't care about what Fidel, or whatever happened, what Raúl say. No, no, no. They love Canada. They don't know too much about Canada.
2: After talking about the tourist relationship, we talk a little bit about the trading relationship Canadians have with Cuba.
3: I see the relationship between Canada and Cuba are very good right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't see anything change. <laughs> there was some oil company, oil company in Cuba. But I don't think right now we have. Like we have, I think was Shell. I don't remember which oil company was in Cuba, working over there. But I don't see some. Uh, they work anymore. I see they export fruit and a lot of stuff too, from Cuba to here, fruit. Um, because I saw, ah, shrimp, like Camarones. (laughs) This is another thing. Like, so they sport some stuff in Cuba, like seafood. And in Cuba, my family don't eat seafood, can't eat seafood because they don't have. It's difficult to, when you sport something like tomato, orange, and I was in Cuba in December and they don't have nothing. And you are you exporting everything? I, I don't understand that. I don't understand.
1: Alexis points out to us that the nature of the export industry can be
2: kind of controversial. Yeah, well, Cubans working in this industry to export commodities that Canadians can enjoy when they themselves can't afford or just don't have access to these things.
3: And like chicken, like pork, is number one. Everybody in Cuba have pork because it's the, the, how you say, if you go to the somebody's house in Cuba, the the, the first place they want to give you is pork. And now they know, like, it's super expensive right like now. The last price I heard about the, the pork is one pound was 130 Cuban pesos. This is, 130 Cuban pesos is $5. This is expensive. <laughs>
2: Alexis gets pretty personal with us. He shares the emotional weight of traveling to Cuba and seeing his family live in poverty and coming back to a first world environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing is going on vacation and feeling bad for people you see, and then coming back home and live your regular life. But actually going back home and seeing your family struggle, you can't just ignore that. It's
3: very hard. I went, I, I came back like, like uh, crying because I say, my God, they don't have nothing. Like eh, nothing. You go, you go to the the supermarket there, and it's nothing. When I come back, and after I went to Costco, and I and I say, oh my God. So my sister tells me, well, what are you in Costco? Can you take some pictures? So I take some picture, video. When my sister was like, oh my God, my sister don't need red meat for for enough of how long? So when people see that, you know, they say, "Why we don't have this in Cuba? Why we have to do it to change everything here in Cuba?"
1: So, hearing out everything Alexis has said about the Cuban economy, it is pretty clear that it's heavily centered around the black market, and there's a huge shortage of resources, which creates a whole survival of the richest
3: scenario. I was there for one month. I had to wake up one, wake up one time five a.m. in the morning to line up. The big line up to buy chicken for my mom, because my mom is she. She was too old. She's a, she was 83 years old. You know, and she can do it. A, a line up anymore. She can wake up too early to. And with the COVID stuff right now, do you see you? You can have uh, too many line up. No, so my friend told me you don't want to make it. You want to stay here for eight hours, and when you go inside to the store, you don't want to have chicken. And that was true. So you know what I did? I have to pay extra eight dollar American. <laughs> and in the afternoon, I have chicken, I have hot dog, and I have, I know, um, how you call ground beef in my in the door of my house on top, you know, to buy the food. So this eight dollar is for the guy put it in his pocket.
2: It's like that's like sixty dollars Canadian
3: dollars. Yes, almost sixty or fifty. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And you see when th- this is another thing you talking the very good point. When I do the exchange from um, in Cuba, oh my God, to Canadian to to Cuba money. Well, they call CUC. They now they take it out. The CUC is like the American dollar. So sometimes I give like. 100 uh, uh, can, uh, Canadian, and they give me 80 or 70 dollars.
2: The Cuban peso is worth about 42 cents in American currency, and everything in Cuba is demanded in American dollars. But unless you're someone like Alexis, who is a Cuban Canadian, you have literally no access to currency exchanges.
1: Yeah, and he is able to help out his family, but if he was still in Cuba, it would be a completely different situation. There are so many people struggling, but not a lot of people are willing to sit down and talk about these things.
2: Yeah, Alexis was one of the few people who was ready to tell his truth. And this was surprising to us, so we asked him why he was willing to tell us about it and what he thinks may be preventing others from speaking.
3: And so I go to Cuba every year, you know. And this time was the worst time I never have. Wow, people that I I never see people complain in the street like I saw in this time when I went to Cuba. My mom was uh, afraid to talk about all this stuff, you know? And she'll be, oh, no, because of because, church, sure, she want to stay there. I don't know if I tell you, my mom passed away uh, uh, two weeks ago, and my mom afraid to something happen to her if she say, if she say something about Cuba, about the politics. You know what I mean?
2: Since Alexis's mom passed away, he feels he has nothing to lose by telling the truth. He also recognizes by sharing these details, there may be consequences for him if he returns to Cuba. In this
1: next part, he talks about how things are so corrupt, but people are afraid to complain. So the ones who are fed up and have resources to leave, others just don't have the luxury.
3: For the Cuban government, I am the Canadian. (laughs) Canadian people. I'm not Cuban anymore. Is Canada, for example, deport me to Cuba where I want to go because I'm not Cuban, they say I am not Cuban because if I want to buy a house, I can buy a house. If I got sick in Cuba, I have to pay in dollars. Okay? Because I am not Cuban. I am Canadian. It's... That is, I don't understand, but when I, well, listen now, when I want to, when I go inside to Cuba, when I travel to Cuba, I have to bring my Cuban passport. Every four years, I have to, it's the new passport, I four or five years, four, it's $400, I think so 350 plus every two years, I have to do it, the extension, they call prorroga.
1: So to better understand what he means, we looked into in-between citizen status. And it turns out that Cuba does not offer dual citizenship. So it's been a struggle for Cuban Canadians and Americans to come visit Cuba.
2: Basically, they have to get this Cuban passport in order to come back to Cuba. But there are these restrictions, including healthcare access. Others who are considered Cuban exiles have to get a tourist visa, which is pretty difficult to get.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the proroga he talks about is a fee paid to get an extension on your Cuban passport. It has to be purchased
2: every two years
1: and is usually around $230. According to Article 215 of the immigration law, whoever enters Cuba without completing these legal formalities or immigration procedures is liable for imprisonment for one to three years or a
2: fine of $300 to $1,000. If you leave and don't come back to Cuba, you are no longer Cuban. This was the case of Celia Cruz, who is popularly known as the Queen of Salsa. She was banned under the Castro regime from entering Cuba.
3: Celia Cruz, she traveled, I think, she traveled to Mexico, to the U.S., I don't know where, where, and she didn't come back to Cuba. So, what happened with her? What do you think happened to her?
2: She was not allowed to go back to Cuba.
3: Exactly. But, she, like, for Celia Cruz, it's not like, they say no, eight years, no. She never, they say never. So, his her mom died, and they didn't get uh, her to go to see her mom when uh, when she died. So this is why Celia Cruz died in the U.S.
1: According to Billboard.com, Celia Cruz was banned from Cuba in 1962. Her music was banned as well. The last time she got close to Cuba was when she performed for troops in Guantanamo Bay in 1990. It was said after her performance, she was able to grab a jar and fill it up with soil in memory of Cuba. It's been stated that she was buried with that same jar. In this next clip, Gina will be translating an interview Celia did when Tito Puentes asked, What is
2: salsa? Well, like I was saying, when I started with Tito, they did not call it Salsa. I began to record with Tito in 1965 or 66, and it was not called Salsa. But I understand that around 1967, Johnny Pacheco and Al Santiago started a company that was called Alegre, and from then on, they began to call it Salsa. For me, Salsa is the same Cuban music that I have been playing since I started. With the Sonora
0: Mantancera. When I was in Cuba a couple of years ago, I noticed something strange. I heard Quimbara. Quimbara is this iconic song by Celia Cruz and the Fania All Stars. And it was in Cuba. And it was at a beach. Now, as you heard, Celia Cruz was basically canceled by the Cuban government for many, many years. As were any cuban americans who turned their back on the island but in the past few years things are changing more private businesses are opening more people are gaining access to the internet the flow of information is going more freely and yeah you're gonna hear celia cruz gloria stefan just about anything that you hear in north america you're gonna hear in cuba these days You've been listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you in school. I am your host, Russell Cobb, and I really want to thank Gina and Natalie for their terrific work on this particular episode and all my former students who participated in the C- CSL project with this Canada-Cuba miniseries. It's been quite an interesting voyage. We'll see you back next time with more stories that you certainly didn't learn when you were studying in school. Take care now. Bye.